Hello folks and warmest welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales one-person true crime show that seeks out and recounts the usually lesser-known uncovered crimes from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. I'm the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, Paul, but it's great to be back with you, it's good having you here and I'm hoping that as you're all listening in, then you're all good and well. So as we battle on through the worldwide stopping in saga, which is going on longer than bloody all time now, isn't it? It does seem to have been as busy as ever here on The Enthusiast, trying to balance the show with the real world somewhat, if you like. So this episode's been a bit delayed. I can only apologise for that. But as I've said before here, real life takes over sometimes. Plus, I set myself a bar and I won't just rush stuff out unless it's the best that I can possibly do. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, Maniac has taken some researching, it really has. But we're getting there for sure, and we'll get to part 6 shortly. I'm also beginning writing bonus Patreon episode 29 as you hear this, which will be out before the end of the month. These weeks proper fly by, don't they? They really, really do. Massive thanks are going out this episode to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, namely Kevin Wright, Wayne Cross, Paul Cloney, Jasper Gill, Michelle Neville, Alex, Sarah Cameron, Terry Williamson, Paul Kennedy, Susan Strobe, Zevaru, Melissa Escott, Natasha Howell, Danny Hartree-Smith, Joe Robinson and Fiona Fairgreave. It's absolutely ace of you that is folks. Your support is so very much appreciated and I hope that you've caught up with the unreleased bonus episodes that being a supporter of the show brings with it. As always, should any of you guys want to do the same and get to hear tales such as The Beauty in the Bikini or Enough Rope or Maths Misunderstandings and Murder, then to do so, it's so simple, it should be called Simon, really. You just head on over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there or use the ever-present link that's in the episode show notes and just go from there. Stay tuned as well for an upcoming video for Patreoners as I'm doing this long-mentioned but never-delivered Ask Me Anything video clip soon. I really am. I'm going to sit down, knuckle down and get it done. I must also thank once again those who have donated kindly to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Macmillan Cancer Support fundraiser that the show's got going on, which I'm so pleased to say we've passed more than half of the total that I'd love to raise, which I'm absolutely bowled over with. And your donations for such a worthwhile cause have been very kind, so thanks so much, guys. Details of it are in the episode show notes or on the show's Facebook discussion group also, should anybody else wish to donate. So we shall get to part six of Maniac shortly, right after a short word from ExpressVPN. With these days of being stuck at home, you probably think your internet privacy on your own home network's fine. You just fire up incognito mode on your browser and no one can see what you're doing, can they? Well, you're wrong, because even in incognito mode, your online activity can still be traced. Even if you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website that you've ever visited. This is where ExpressVPN comes in. ExpressVPN makes sure that your ISP can't see what sites you visit by rerouting your internet connection through their secure servers. Each server has an IP address that's shared among thousands of other users, which means everything that you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. It also encrypts 100% of your data, 
so your information is always protected. Simply tap one button and you're safe, allowing you online with confidence from your computer, your tablet, your smartphone. As the fastest, most trusted VPN on the market, ExpressVPN's got you covered on every device. So to protect your online activity today with a VPN that's rated number one by CNET, Wired and The Verge, by visiting the link expressvpn.com forward slash true crime, you can get an extra three months free on a one year package. That's expressvpn.com forward slash true crime, expressvpn.com forward slash true crime to learn more. So this episode then, let's meet the maniac, the ghost who's run through our tale so far. We've looked at the green chain rapes, the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett, the infamous Wimbledon Common slaying of Rachel Nickell, and the disastrous plot by the Met Police to honey trap Colin Stagg, which left them disgraced and admonished for their actions, and an innocent man to be labelled a pariah for many years to come. Now all of these actions are the results of one particular individual, and following the time jump that we've had for the previous three parts, we now head back to 1994 to the Bissett Incident Room in Thamesmead Police Station to begin. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including references of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always guys, please use your discretion whilst you're listening. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look at part 6 of the Maniac Arc. The Monstrous Crimes of Robert Knapper. So when we left part two of Maniac, police hunting the killer of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett had identified three fingerprints at different locations within 1A Heathfield Terrace that were under closer scrutiny were found not to belong to Samantha as originally thought. They were incredibly similar, but prints lifted from the balcony railing, the bedroom door frame and Jasmine's cot were double-checked and found to belong to an individual, a local man already known to police, because he had a previous criminal record. The man had not cropped up as an acquaintance of Samantha during the investigation, and hadn't been identified as one of the men who were known to have contacted her through the classified adverts that she'd placed. His card was immediately retrieved from Plumstead Police Station and fast-tracked to the Thamesmead Incident Room, where investigators now looked at the photograph pinned to the notice board of the man they believed strongly could be the killer they were seeking. One of the inquiry civilian staff, an experienced indexer named Pamela Robinson, who'd worked on several high-profile inquiries before, had taken one look at the photograph and said, That's the green chain rapist. It's an absolute ringer for the photo fit. Now Pamela had worked on the then defunct Operation Eccleston almost two years before and knew the artist's impression of the man wanted in connection to detail from memory. When a copy of the Green Chain Rapes appeal poster was fetched and this impression compared to the photograph of the suspect, everyone looking at it agreed that it was indeed a remarkable likeness. The photograph and fingerprints belonged to a 27-year-old Plumstead man named Robert Clive Knapper, who, when his collator's card was checked, was found to have come to the attention of police a number of times over the previous decade, resulting in criminal charges on three occasions. 
The first of these had come back in August 1986 when he and another youth had been stopped on New Road in the Bexley sub-district of Belvedere in possession of a loaded air pistol. Although Napper had tried to conceal the weapon, it was discovered upon a search of him and he was arrested. He pleaded guilty to this in Bexley Heath Magistrates Court in December of that year and was given a conditional discharge for 12 months with £10 court costs. Skip forward next to the Tuesday the 27th of October 1992 where police were informed by the proprietor of a printing firm in Plumstead High Street, Jetsum Press, that an oddball had been in requesting 50 A4 sized letter headings complete with Metropolitan Police Crest and bearing the Greenwich Division logo underneath. When the customer had gone, the proprietor had contacted police suspicious that the man was impersonating a police officer and genuine police were waiting for him when he returned for his printing. The man ran off when confronted but was soon caught, arrested and identified as Robert Knapper. When he was taken back to the address he was living at at the time, a bedsit at 63 Reedhaven Road in Plumstead, it was here that police discovered and seized a whole plethora of goodies, including a crossbow and bolt, what was described as a sort of listening device, but most worrying, an unlicensed .22 Irma pistol and 244 rounds of ammunition. They also seized what was recorded at the time as a quantity of correspondence, which included a London A to Z street map, extensively marked with hand-drawn markings, roots and doodlings, which we'll come back to a bit later. Napper was charged with possession of an unlicensed weapon following this. Now, why he wanted 50 sheets of Met Police notepaper was never pursued, or has never been satisfactorily explained. And in December 1992, he pleaded guilty to possession of an unlicensed firearm at Woolwich Magistrates Court, for which he received an eight-week custodial sentence, serving 25 days imprisonment to this at HMP Belmarsh. The items that were seized were retained at Plumstead Police Station to await disposal, and no further offences were recorded against Snapper until the 1st of February 1994, when he was back in Woolwich Magistrates Court and convicted of shoplifting confectionery valued to the sum of £6.9 from the Quicksave supermarket on Woolwich High Street, for which he received another one-year conditional discharge. So although the serious offences, on paper there was nothing to suggest Robert Knapper was a maniacal sex killer and multiple rapist, but the combination of these offences had earned Knapper an entry onto what is known as a collator's card index, which was held at Plumstead Police Station. It's a card index of persons coming to interest in the force's catchment area or division. Now this didn't just contain details of Napper's arrests, but also a record of the occasions when he'd come to police notice. One such example being as follows. At 9.30pm on the night of Saturday the 31st of August 1993, Police had been called to a property in the Rutherglen Road area of Abbeywood, about a mile from where Napper was then living, 135 Plumstead High Street, which is a Victorian terrace type which was split into bedsits, after receiving a report of a possible peeping Tom. Now Rutherglen Road is very close to Wynn's Common and actually backs onto an open grassland area near Bostall Woods, which is part of the Green Chain Walk. 
One of the house occupants in the road had observed a man climbing a wall at the rear of his row of houses whilst holding what appeared to be either a knife or a screwdriver in his right hand before perching on top and peering into the windows of the witness's next door neighbour who was a young blonde woman in her early 20s. When the witness had illuminated his outside house lights the man had jumped down from the wall and retreated into nearby bushes, took in whatever he was carrying in his right hand into his jacket. As the witness kept observing and called police, he noticed that the man ran off when police duly arrived moments later. A search of the area revealed a man in a nearby alleyway, who was identified as Robert Knapper. He was searched, but nothing like a knife or screwdriver was found on his person. And although he claimed just to be out for a walk, there was something about him. It was the way he answered questions in a stilted manner with a peculiar choice of language that perturbed the officers. It was enough to make them take Napper back to his address on Plumstead High Street and to later remark on the stop and search form paperwork, aside from Napper's basic information, a side note claiming, Subject strange, abnormal should be considered as a possible rapist slash indecency type suspect. Should be considered indeed, eh? So not only was he a dead ringer for the artist's impression of the green chain rapist, but he'd been earmarked as a possible sex offender having been stopped on part of the green chain itself just two months before Samantha and Jasmine were murdered and his fingerprints were in Samantha Bissett's flat. Rather than arrest him immediately, it was decided instead to place Robert Knapper under around-the-clock surveillance to see if he may lead police to further evidence, perhaps a murder weapon, for example. Whilst the meeting now took place between Detective Superintendent Mickey Banks and the senior investigating officers of the now-defunct Operation Eccleston. Banks told Detective Superintendent Steve Landerieu and Detective Inspector John Pierce that they had identified Napper as a strong suspect based on forensic evidence that had been discovered at the Bissett crime scene, but that further, they outlined that Napper's photo fit, his odd behaviour and his geography made them believe that he could also be the sought-after green chain rapist. Pierce told him that according to consultation of the Eccleston Holmes database entry, Napper had been flagged up and named twice as a possible match for the photo fit, but when asked if Napper had ever been blood tested, they were told he'd been eliminated from the inquiry due to the height parameters used for elimination purposes, rather than follow this up as the inquiry was being wound down. Napper at 6 foot 1 was deemed to be too tall. Now by all accounts there was some bitterness and bad feeling between the two teams, whether it was personal dislike or professional conflict, who knows. But Banks was left unimpressed that Napper's refusal to give blood had not been followed up, and after advisement, shall we say, the inactive Operation Eccleston was reopened. That investigative team now scrabbling to complete some 390 actions that were left outstanding from it. So, Robert Napper was placed under constant surveillance beginning the very following morning, Friday the 20th of May. In what would become a regular pattern, the unmistakable figure of Napper, and he looks actually, he reminds me of Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory, he's, I think he's very, very like it. So, in what would become a regular pattern, 
He was observed leaving his bedsit in Plumstead High Street just after 7am each morning carrying his black Jaguar sports bag where he would make his way on foot the same route to his place of employment, Glyndon Plastics, about a mile away on the Thamesmead trading estate. Here, Napper was employed as a machine operator working an 8 to 8, 12 hour Monday to Friday shift pattern but no attempt was made to approach anyone at his work not wanting to risk the possibility that Napper may become aware that he was being surveilled. Over his days off on the weekend of the 21st and 22nd of May, however, the team watched as Napper in the afternoon took a series of trains and buses and headed up to Charing Cross, where he spent some time perusing sporting goods stores and camping shops in the area, noticed to be taking a considerable interest in the large camping knives that were on display which he lingered looking at for some time. He was also witnessed heading into a newsagent, where he spent some time reading through a copy of Guns and Ammo without buying it, before selecting an amount of top-shelf grumble mags that he did take home with him. After taking a prolonged route home that included an unnecessary, seemingly pointless stop in Sidcup, where he spent some time wandering around the back streets, that was Napper. He repeated the same actions almost to a T the following day, back to Charing Cross, back to buying more grot and perusing his knives, and the rest of the week Napper would simply head out to work and return home in the evening. Apart from Tuesday the 24th of May, when he was noticed leaving his bedsit shortly after he returned home from work, dressed in dark clothing and sporting a baseball cap, full on stalker gear, eh? He walked off purposely from here for about half a mile down the high street to St Nicholas Road before apparently changing his mind about wherever he was going and heading back. Throughout all of the surveillance, it was not lost on any of the officers watching that Robert Napper walked with a pronounced stoop, making him appear much shorter than his actual six foot one. A decision was now made to arrest Napper on Friday the 27th of May, with police concerned that his activities over the weekend, buying porn, checking out knives, could mean he was building up to attack someone else, and he couldn't be risked being at large. The plan was for a six-man team to move and arrest Napper outside his bedsit just after he left at 7am, whilst the adjoining Bath and Kentmere roads would also be covered by police in case Napper fled as he stopped. Napper would then be taken to Bexley Heath Police Station, as it was equipped with better facilities than Thamesmead and had a video interview room, whilst the search team would move into Napper's bedsit in 135, complete with a cadaver dog also in attendance during the search, in case the missing piece of Samantha's flesh was present in the room. Paul Britton would also be in attendance at Bexley Heath to advise upon and supervise the interviews, whilst arrangements were made for a representative from Operation Eccleston to be there too, to be able to step in and interview Napper after the Bissett team had completed theirs. But by 7.30am that Friday morning, Napper had still not appeared. he definitely not left the premises, as both the front and rear had been constantly watched and so a decision was made by police to knock the front door at 7.40am, which was answered by an upstairs neighbour who directed them to the ground floor bedsit on the rear left. When this door was knocked, after a moment Napper answered it dressed in his boxer shorts, and a team of five police officers burst in. 
Before he had chance to even scratch his arse, he was told by Detective Sergeant Alan Jackman that he was being arrested for the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett of 1A Heathfield Terrace on the 3rd or the 4th of November 1993, an arrest with grounds of forensic evidence, and also for a rape in May 1992 in Eltham, and a series of sexual offences dating back to 1989 to which Napper responded yes to both points when asked if he understood. It was shortly established that the reason he'd deferred from his clockwork routine that morning was because the previous day he'd been sacked from Glendon Plastics after a series of warnings regarding his conduct. After arranging for the upstairs neighbour of Napper's who'd allowed police access to the property to be present whilst the search of his bedsit took place, Napper was handcuffed and taken to the waiting police van, cuffed between two officers. As Napper was being placed into the van, he turned to Detective Sergeant Jackerman and said, I heard of the murders in the paper. I don't know Samantha Bissett. I've never been to where you said. A statement which was logged immediately. He was then taken to Bexley Heath Police Station and processed, the usual standard, checked for property, any wounds or markings to him, his body was photographed and a full description of him was written down, where his height was recorded at 6 foot 1. The procedure and details of the arrest was read out to the custody sergeant, including Napper's unsolicited comment which had been recorded, to which Napper agreed and signed. Napper was all the time silent, he was polite when spoken to and cooperative when he was being medically examined. He even consented for a blood sample being taken from him, which was of course fast-tracked for analysis. Meanwhile, the search team at 135 produced a ruck of interesting findings from such a small space, because Napper's bedsit was tiny and it was very sparsely furnished. It had no windows and only one entry point, and just a cupboard, table and chair, and a stereo and television for furnishings. There wasn't even a bed, Napper instead sleeping on a mattress on the floor. Everything in there was, however, immaculately stored away and very, very clean. What was removed from there was as follows. There were several top-shelf pornographic magazines interspersed with pamphlets and magazines about unarmed combat, adverts and catalogues for hunting-type knives, and piles of papers covered with sketches and doodles involving knife attacks, and phrases ranging from disturbing words and synonyms for death, to a side notes next to hand-drawn maps saying things like sodden filthy bitch, or referring to cling film on the legs. One handwritten note said Mengele's way, an apparent reference to the evil bastard Nazi doctor who performed countless unspeakable surgical and psychological experimentations upon living and dead victims. There was also a heavily used Collins dictionary with several words marked with an asterisk, almost all of which had a morbid connotation to them, words such as carcass, Hades, holocaust, immolate, necropolis, regicide, valkyrie, and there were photocopied pages of a book with particular attention paid to the neck area entitled The Dragon's Touch, which was published in 1983 by Master Hay Long, and which referred to in detail how to incapacitate another and to deal death blows to a person. The Amazon blurb for it, if anyone's tempted, reads, Drop your opponent in an instant with the deadly moves of the Dragon's Touch. 
Immobilize or destroy your foe with high impact blows to the body's most vulnerable areas. Learn which angles to use in striking 43 major target zones. These pressure points are explicitly illustrated and 165 photos guide you in attacking each spot with the moves of Lian Shi Kung Fu. It's got bloody stocking filler written all over it, that hasn't it, eh? In everyone's Christmas stocking this year. The bedsit also contained a khaki haversack containing the quantity of stones that Napa would use to wear while he was on training runs. There was a Sanyo music centre found to have a length of synthetic rope in the battery compartment and a pass to Enskilda, which was later traced to be a car park pass issued to Enskilda merchant bankers in East London and in the only cupboard of the bedsit, a padlocked red metal toolbox. And what goodies did we have in here, Alibaba? When the toolbox was opened, a hand-printed sign was sellotaped inside the lid, which read, Lonesome, bored, like excitement, want to be noticed, want to meet strange new people? Then just leave your security container open. The toolbox contained two 8-inch hunting knives, a pile of receipts and a London A to Z, which was found when leafed through to contain several markings, traced out routes, random symbols and commentary drawn upon its pages, with a clear asterisk marked next to the page containing 1A Heathfield Terrace. The receipts were for two hunting knives that Napper had purchased back in 1992. Paperwork showing he'd received one on the 13th of July of that year by registered post described as a special operations government knife that had cost him £62.45 and one he'd bought by mail order as a belated Christmas present to himself after he'd served his few weeks custody, a recon model of the same type of knife that had set him back the same price. Receipts were also discovered for another two knives from a magazine devoted solely to the sale of these that he'd purchased by mail order some months previous to the other two, a KHM-18 Mirage combat knife and a KS-100 knife and scissors sharpener, which were paid for by cheque and sent to a previous address of his, 189 Wellhall Road. Not one of these knives described matched the two that were found in the toolbox, and they weren't found anywhere else in the bedsit. Another receipt that stood out was one for a size 9 pair of Adidas Phantom Low trainers from M&M Sports that Napper had paid for by cheque on the 12th of January 1993 for the sum of £67.48 and that had been delivered to his previous address, 63 Reedhaven Road. Now although the actual trainers themselves weren't found at the bedsit, their identifiable shoebox was, as was a footprint from them, the clear outline of an Adidas Phantom Low trainer which was found trodden onto the weird homemade warning notice in the toolbox when it was peeled off. It was an exact match for the footprint that had been removed from the crime scene at Heathfield Terrace. Early the following morning, the Saturday, the interviews with Napper began early. Present were Napper, his appointed solicitor Paul Herman, and a social services representative, appropriate adult Lee Sims, whilst Detective Inspector Brian Reeve and Detective Constable Peter Canavan conducted the interview with him linked via earpiece to Mickey Banks and Paul Britton. However, the officers failed to develop any kind of rapport with Napper, 
and he answered no comment to all of their questions. Detective Inspector John Pierce and Detective Constable Eddie Lever from Operation Eccleston then took over and interviewed him in connection with the green chain rapes. And although they did develop more of a rapport with Napper, he still made no admissions to anything put to him. Following a break, the Bissett team recommenced, but this time with the arresting officer, Detective Sergeant Alan Jackerman, taking the place of D.I. Reeve. Deciding to change tack somewhat and not refer to the pre-planned notes, but to rather create the form of a chat, Napper was at first cooperative, but a pattern soon developed as to whenever he felt uncomfortable with a questioning, if it was leading towards the murders, he would either reply, I wish to make no comment at this particular moment in time, or request that the interview stop for consultation with his solicitor for the slightest excuse. This happened no less than five times during the session, the longest uninterrupted period of interview being 27 minutes in length. When the interview was terminated and Napper told of the list of evidence against him, he was reminded and asked once again about his comment upon being detained, that he didn't know Samantha Bissett and he'd never been to 1A Heathfield Terrace, to which Napper once again agreed. He'd now been caught in a provable lie. On Sunday the 29th of May 1994, Robert Napper was charged with the murders of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett at Bexley Heath. Just these for then, for the team were still awaiting DNA results coming back. When the samples from Napper did return a short time later, it gave confirmation to what every officer had suspected. They were a perfect DNA match for the samples that had been retained from the Green Chain Rapist and he was subsequently charged with the crimes that we looked at in the first part of Maniac. Operation Eccleston now set about arranging an identity parade attended by all four women who'd been attacked, which was held at Southwark Police Station on the 4th of July 1994, and aside from Julia, who'd been the first woman raped in her home on Purrit Road in 1989, all three other women picked out Robert Napper unhesitatingly. Back after Napper had been charged with these offences and remanded in custody to HMP Belmarsh, the inquiry was now widened to look for other possible offences Napper may have committed in the two years from the last known rape on the 25th of May 1992 to his arrest on the 27th of May 1994. Certain that he'd done other things besides his known arrest for possession of an unlicensed weapon, the murders of Samantha and Jasmine in 1993, and his court appearance for shoplifting in February 1994. This is where the incident with the woman waiting for the bus had been flagged up, as we heard of in Part 1 of Maniac, and although Napper seemed to have not strayed far from the locality, of course, an open mind was needed, and this is where the A to Z came in, or rather, the A to Zs. Because aside from the A to Z found in the red metal toolbox when Napper's bedsit at 135 Plumstead High Street had been searched, a search of Plumstead police station files had revealed reference in the property store to this other correspondence that had been retained when Napper was arrested for possession of the firearm in October 1992, which contained an A to Z street map. When both of these books were examined side by side, each revealed many hand-drawn doodles and notes in their pages, markings apparently attaining to jogging routes, 
but with several features such as drainage shafts or copses of trees also marked out, or geometric shapes drawn around apparently random areas of land. A large majority of these markings were found to correspond to places located on the Green Chain Walk, including marks at each of the places where confirmed attacks by the rapist had occurred. Purit Road was also marked in both books, with an asterisk marking a copse of trees just off Wind's Common Road that looked down into Julia's back garden. There was also another asterisk on the same page in the second A to Z, only a short distance away from here in a straight line across Wind's Common. An asterisk smack bang in the rear garden of 1A Heathfield Terrace. It appeared that Napper was marking out places he'd struck, or places that he could watch women from. It had not been lost on police when they'd looked at the similarities between the first rape of the green chain attacks and the murder of Samantha and Jasmine. Attractive blonde women, both attacked in their own home, both involving the presence of children, and both were known to sunbathe in their gardens, such a short geographical distance apart. But there were references to other addresses also. The first A to Z that was seized in 1992 contained a Greenwich Borough gym pass for a fitness club in Elm Terrace that Napper himself had briefly belonged to, but belonging to a woman whose address was given as Grainchill Road, Eltham, which was only a short distance from Napper's then address of 189 Wellhall Road. The card was tucked into the page containing this address and an inked circle around the name Grainchill next to the address of this woman was also found in the A to Z. She was of a similar description to all of the Green Chain victims and Samantha Bissett. When reading a transcript of the interview of Napper when he'd been interviewed over the firearms offences and this matter had been brought up, Napper said, I found it outside 189 Wellhall Road. I found the pass outside the house. At the time, I'd only just come in from walking from my work. My intention was I should place it in the relevant page of the A to Z and give it back to her, but obviously had it waylaid. Now this woman, who was actually a relation of one of the senior officers on the Bissett team, was interviewed and told how she joined the gym in June 1992, about the same time she began working as bar staff at the Welcome Inn a former public house very near where Napper was living at the time before he suddenly moved to Reed Haven Road on the 24th of September 1992. It was also in September 1992 that a purse was stolen from a staff changing room at the rear of the pub. Now there's no evidence to suggest that Napper was the thief here and indeed the room it was in was difficult for access for members of the public so it's possible that he did indeed find it on the road but there was no explanation as to why he didn't either return it to the issuing company noted on the address on the rear, which stated quite clearly, if found, please return to the waterfront leisure centre, Woolwich, which he passed every day on his direct route to work. Or he could have returned it to the gym he used to be a member of himself, or he could even have posted it back through a door. It was only a few hundred yards from his own address at the time. Yet he did none of these, and was still in possession of it more than a month later, with her address marked in his A to Z. Don't you think she's incredibly lucky that she never met Robert Napper?
But there were several more of these markings, as I said before, that couldn't be pinpointed to the site of attacks and weren't near obvious viewpoints or addresses, which police considered may correspond to locations where Napa kept his weapons or trophies from his crimes. They had receipts for four expensive hunting knives that hadn't been discovered during the search of his property, so where were these? They hadn't been left behind during one of his moves because all of his previous addresses, including the lofts and gardens, had been searched after his arrest and apart from a tent and an old weapons magazine in Well Hall Road, nothing had been found. They also had to bear in mind that Napa's previous most serious conviction had been for possession of an unlicensed weapon and ammunition. He was obviously well into his weapons, so did these markings correspond to hidden stashes of knives? or even guns. Painstaking research of past offences revealed an incident in early 1992 which gave weight to this hidden stash theory. A young blonde woman living alone in a ground floor flat in a property just off Plumstead Common do you see a bit of a pattern here or what? was shocked when one of her windows was suddenly broken one evening after dark. She was even more shocked to find a spent bullet embedded into the wall by where she was stood when the window broke, which as she'd looked out to see if she could see who'd thrown something, got the impression there was someone standing in woodland just opposite where she lived. A senior crime officer attended and retained this bullet and the crime was recorded as a criminal damage, yet for reasons unexplained he didn't book the bullet in as evidence attaining to this, but rather took it home and kept it on his mantelpiece. Then almost a year later, on the 19th of February 1993, two boys playing in the woods at Winds Common discovered a happy shopper assorted biscuits tin buried in a shallow hole in the undergrowth. Upon opening it, they found a carefully wrapped World War II Mauser .22 handgun, serial number A02837. Placing it back, they went and informed their parents who informed police, and the weapon and tin were recovered and the pistol sent to the police firearms lab to be tested for fingerprints and to see if it could be matched to any firearm-related crimes, which both proved negative. Now, when this instance of criminal damage was found through a search by the Bissett team, the whereabouts of this spent bullet was revealed and it was tested against the still-in-storage Mauser and found to be a perfect match. It had been fired from the pistol hidden in the woods at Winds Common. So the biscuit tin it was hidden in was also then retrieved from storage and submitted for fingerprinting, and on the inside of the lid was the palm and fingerprint of one Robert Clive Napper. The exact spot where this biscuit tin had also been marked in Napper's first A to Z, which he couldn't have retrieved because his map was in police storage. A visit to the scene in both daylight and darkness revealed that from the point in the woodland where the woman had seen someone, it was an easy shot to have made, and to police, there was no doubt that Napper had found himself a potential victim and had fired at her, his aim only just off by the shadow cast by the standard lamp in her room. Not surprisingly, the woman had moved shortly after this. You'd be bloody well gone, wouldn't you? Someone fired through your window. Detective Constable Christine Smith from Operation Eccleston was now tasked with examining each of the doodles and markings on both books to produce a plan of any other possible corresponding offences or hiding places for evidence or trophies from these. 
There were hundreds of these marks, either random odd words or many making no sense at all, but intense study began to reveal patterns coinciding with the A to Zs. A3 maps were produced where the doodles were superimposed over the markings, and charts were made where marks could be compared with known offences. Now the majority of these, around 80 or so marks, were dotted around southeast London and the Green Chain, but six clear marks were found north of the River Thames. There were three in Hackney, two in Barnet, and one near Regent's Park. The only other markings from both A to Zs were in West London, one in Hayes, and a clear rectangle marking out an area of Isabella Plantation. Isabella Plantation is very, very close to Wimbledon Common. Now, as I said a few episodes back, you have to think, what are the chances of two such individuals targeting pretty blonde women in the presence of young children operating in such close proximity, especially bearing in mind that the murder of Rachel Nickell had come between the last known green chain rape, which was confirmed by DNA to have been Napper, and Samantha and Jasmine's murders. You'd have put a month's wages on it being bollocks, wouldn't you? Especially when a slight mark, almost at the exact spot where Rachel had been murdered, was found in the first A to Z that wasn't in the one seized after Napper's arrest for murder. The book was submitted for electrostatic detection apparatus testing to examine indentations on its pages, whilst the publishers were contacted to see if other copies had the same mark and it was a simple printing error. Now because A to Zs are printed in batches, with each batch having its own identifying number, these are imprinted on each individual book, so a copy from the batch which matched the A to Z with the apparent mark on was obtained and checked, and it was found to be a simple printing blemish that appeared on all of them. But what a coincidence, I mean, you couldn't make stuff like that up, could you? And it had drawn police attention to the Rachel Nickell murder, who on the bare facts, you'd put your next month's wages on being connected with the crimes already linked, wouldn't you? Blonde, attractive, attacked in the presence of a child, a knife present, plus the fact that Napper's photograph was very similar to the artist's impression of the Harriman suspect and one of his strange symbols marked out an area of Isabella Plantation, miles away from the other doodlings in the book, but very, very close to where Rachel had met her death. To the Bissett team, it was too much to ignore, and they liaised with the Operation Edzel team, who didn't really want to know their theory and dismissed it, because at the time, they believed that they had Rachel's killer on remand awaiting trial, Colin Stagg. And we now know what an absolute shamble of bollocks that ended up as, don't we? So although Napper had no clear known links to Wimbledon, and it would have been at least an hour's travel for him across the city, the Bissett team now tried to establish his whereabouts on the 15th of July 1992. If he'd been working, it would be deemed he would effectively be alibied and ruled out. At the time, Napper was employed as a stores person working for Serco at the Royal Artillery site at Woolwich, and although records at the Serco head office were checked, no attendance details of employees had been kept. Now that would niggle like a sore tooth that, wouldn't it? But with no advancements that could be made at the time, police concentrated on preparing the case against Napper for the crimes that he was charged with. They had to do this on reduced manpower also, as within a month of Napper being charged with double murder and sexual offences, 
the inquiry team had been reduced to just five and moved offices from Thamesmead to Belvedere on the outskirts of London. Three members of Operation Eccleston were now attached to the office to finalise the case against Napper for the Green Chain attacks. While searches of various routes along the Green Chain Walk were carried out, still looking for Napper's possible weapon stashes, using the symbols and markings that had been superimposed onto the A3 maps. Now a process of search called Winthropin was employed here, which was a tactic named after the army officer who devised a way of searching in Northern Ireland during the Troubles in the 1970s and 80s. It was based on the premise that pre-planned attacks upon the army during their patrols would require the heavy weaponry to be hidden beforehand in a place that could be readily identified by the terrorists with some sort of marker, a tree or an identifiable feature, that sort of thing, that could be described to those who were carrying out the attack and so be easy for them to find. Transferring this logic then, considerable successes were achieved when identifying ahead places that an attack was deemed likely and seeking out likely identifying markers in the area. It's the exact same process that had been used to find the ransom money that had been hidden by the one-legged train spotter himself, Michael Sams, two years previously. Head back to series two of the show for a three-parter on that case and a fascinating story it is too. So as this got underway then, counsel was appointed for Napa's trial, which was fixed to begin on the 2nd of September 1995, with renowned barrister Nigel Sweeney QC leading the prosecution case and William Clegg QC appointed to defend Napa. Now if William Clegg's name is familiar, it should be, because we met him in the previous episode. As in a bizarre quirk of fate, he was, at the time he was appointed to Napa's case, defending one Colin Francis Stagg. There's some coincidences through this case, I tell you. But then the prosecution case was hit with a bit of a blow. A problem had arisen with the DNA evidence retrieved from the scene of the first of the green chain rapes, that of Julia in Purit Road, as a mistake had been made where one of the samples had become contaminated through an error in the laboratory. It was policy at the time that in the event of such an occurrence, the entire batch would be deemed unreliable, which although after confirmation, negated the DNA evidence against Napa for this particular offence. Julia had also been the only witness to fail to pick him out of an identity parade, so it was ultimately decided not to proceed with the Purit Road case as part of the prosecution which was a pisser because it was this offence of the series that was the linker to the Bissett murders. All of the others had been committed upon open ground, but this showed an offender operating indoors who had surveilled the victim before. Clear parallels to Samantha and Jasmine. So would the existing evidence that they had be enough to convict Robert Clive Napper? And had he done others? Robert Clive Napper was born on the 25th of February 1967. Coincidentally, and I told you there were a few throughout this tale, the exact same day as Samantha Bissett. In a maternity hospital in Erith, South East London, the first son of driving instructor Brian Napper and his wife Pauline. The early years of Napper and his younger siblings, brought up on the Abbey Road estate in Plumstead, were desperately unhappy ones. From a very young age, the children witnessed brutal violence and psychological cruelty meted out by Brian Napper against Pauline, leaving the children terrified of him. 
It led to Robert from an early age becoming a withdrawn child who did not mix well with others. And whilst a pupil at Blackfen Primary School in the early 1970s, developing a habit of shutting himself away. On at least one occasion there also, his mother was called in by teachers after Robert was caught stealing from other pupils. By 1976, Brian and Pauline's marriage was on the brink of collapse and the violence had gotten so bad that it affected all of the Napa children to the point where each were eventually admitted to the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital in Denmark Hill to receive weekly counselling, which Pauline Napa would make the journey across London with each on public transport every week. Now whilst his younger three siblings did respond well to this treatment and were eventually discharged, Robert was to continue with therapy for some six years, where he was early on diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. After the first session, he returned home to declare, almost chuffed, the psychiatrist thinks I'm mad. His father later recollected. When Robert came home, he had a big grin on his face and said, the psychiatrist thinks I'm mad, Dad. I thought he was just mucking around like kids do, but I later found out that what he'd said was true. By December 1976, the marriage had failed completely and Brian walked out on the family, yet still allegedly plagued them, turning up often and being abusive towards Pauline. The stress and trauma of this led to Pauline Napper being admitted to Queen Mary's Hospital Woolwich with a kidney complaint, which hospitalised her for four weeks and placed the Napper children into foster care. After his father had left the family home, Robert retreated further into himself and became more of a solitary child than before, emerging from his bedroom only to aggressively bully his brothers, whom he often fought violently with, to the extent that he once shot one of them in the face with an air pistol. He also liked to spy on his sister Gillian while she was undressing or in the shower, and once, while she was sleeping, she awoke to find he'd pulled the covers back and was staring at her from the side of the bed. By the time he began secondary school, South East London's Abbeywood Comprehensive, during the late 1970s, Napper was still bullying his siblings to an extreme degree. He was a solitary, secretive boy whose classmates said he was despised, and as a result was bullied a lot because of his already pronounced acne marked out for being a loner. A former classmate of his, Bill Peake, recalled later, Robert was a shy lad, a very quiet lad, a bit of a loner really. He never fitted into any of our social groups. He was very much on his own during his school years. Where there was bullying, Robert was often a target. That could be from boys and girls. So yeah, he was a very vulnerable, very shy young lad really. Now more than one description of Napper from this time paints him as a friendless, withdrawn youth, living in a world of his own is the common consensus. One former unnamed classmate recalled, no one wanted to sit next to him in class. He didn't have any friends and he was teased a lot about his spots. In a game of football once, when he headed the ball, the game stopped because no other boy would go near the ball after it had touched his forehead. So not a happy time by the sounds of it, eh? As Napa reached puberty, he used to be further psychologically damaged and undergo a complete personality change when at age 12, an acquaintance of his mother's who'd befriended the Napa family offered to take Robert and two younger boys camping, which his mother had agreed to, thinking it may get Robert to open up somewhat. Instead, this family friend 
raped him on the trip. The man was subsequently convicted of sexual offences at the Old Bailey and imprisoned, but following the assault, Napper became even more introverted, obsessively tidy and reclusive. Unsurprisingly, it affected his schooling. I mean, whilst he was never a remarkable academic, a former teacher of his later said that the attack made him dramatically withdrawn, turning him overnight from an unremarkable schoolboy into a robot. She recalled, He just shriveled up like a little old man. You couldn't get a reaction out of him. He didn't express any emotion. He sat there and did the work, but he was in his own little world. The one instance where any sort of reaction from Napa during schooling could be recalled was during an English lesson, where the class were played recording of a short story that Napa was entranced by. He turned pale and started to shake and sweat, and at one point the teacher thought he was having a seizure. The story was The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe, a delightful sounding tale for schools about murder and dismemberment. Lovely that, isn't it? Where's To Kill a Mockingbird? Pauline Napper was by then increasingly more concerned about her son's behaviour. He now became a habitual liar at home, who would often hide behind doors to eavesdrop on relatives' conversations, then accuse them of making up stories about him. When he began thieving cash from relatives, she even reported him to police, hoping shock tactics might make him snap out of it. She recalled later, They tried taking him to the police station, taking his fingerprints and treating him as a prisoner. The idea was to frighten him. It didn't frighten him a bit. To anybody outside, he seemed like a nice normal boy. But behind closed doors, he was totally weird. By 1983, Napper had left Abbeywood Comprehensive with CSE grades in six subjects, following which he studied for and earned a City and Guilds qualification in catering. His father had by that time remarried and had emigrated to Australia, and whilst Robert did write to him for a time after this, the correspondence eventually dwindled and ceased completely. He found employment as a kitchen assistant in a Cannon Street wine bar named Elvino's at age 17 where he remained for two years before working as a cable operator at the former Devu Wire in Abbey Wood. Now by this time, the still-disturbed Napper was still living in the family home in Plumstead. However, in 1987, Pauline Napper remarried, and Robert despised his stepfather, refusing point-blank to speak to him. He moved out of the family home as a result of this and into a bedsit, where he stayed at until March 1989 when he changed jobs once again, this time briefly working as an under-chef at the Palace of Westminster, which he lasted only a month at due to difficulty fitting in, according to one of his former managers. Napper spent several months unemployed following leaving here, during which time the first confirmed attack by the Green Chain Rapist occurred, and on the 6th of September 1989, attempted suicide by taking a cocktail of over-the-counter drugs, which was unsuccessful and landed him overnight in the Brook Hospital. Two months after this, he approached his mother and told her that some men were after him because he'd raped a woman on Plumstead Common some weeks before. Now a shocked Pauline Napper reported this via telephone to Plumstead Police Station, but only with sketchy details and times, and not overly convinced that Napper was doing anything but attention-seeking here, knowing his past and even admitting to police that he was an attention seeker and habitual liar. 
A desk officer that she spoke to, who could not be identified, made a cursory inquiry but could find no offences reported as described on Plumstead Common within the time frame and reported as such back to Pauline. Now this was enough for her not to pursue the matter further, believing that Napper had simply been making up a load of old crap. In fact, he was describing the rape of Julia that he'd carried out in a home in Purrit Road, which practically adjoined Wynn's Common. And although Plumstead and Wynn's are two separate commons, they do adjoin and are known to locals collectively as Plumstead Common. In November 1989, he gained employment with Serco, a Ministry of Defence contracted company operating out of the former Royal Artillery site in Woolwich where he was employed as a stores person dealing with large quantities of official MOD forms. Whilst working here, although he was an erratic timekeeper, he performed this role reasonably well. Although he was considered a bit weird by the other staff, often seen talking to himself or shouting at the sky, and never going anywhere without his little black bag with him. He was also especially uncommunicative to the female staff who worked at the site, leaving all of them collectively wary of him. Now this employment lasted until the 11th of September 1992 when because of the site being completely shut down and earmarked for redevelopment he was made redundant and was paid off with £3,400. A long period of unemployment followed this but on the 4th of February 1994 Napper began working as a moulding operator at Glyndon Plastics on the Thamesmead Industrial Estate doing low level repetitive work over a 12 hour shift pattern Monday to Friday. Now, although it was easy work Napper's traits soon came to the fore here he remained an erratic timekeeper would often be off sick without following company procedure for reporting this and would then sulk when he was subsequently admonished. He noticeably had problems with the female staff here also, refusing to speak to them and resenting the fact he had a female supervisor, Geraldine Pullen. It wasn't a job he seemed destined to stay in and indeed he was fired from here after just over three months with the firm on the 26th of May 1994, the day before his arrest for murder. This pattern of sporadic employment was coupled with Napper constantly moving addresses. In 1992 he was living at 189 Well Hall Road where he was contacted by police on the 28th of August following his name being put forward by two people as being a possible match for the artist's impression of the green chain rapist and requested to give a blood sample. A former housemate of his from this time recalled how Napper had his bags packed as though he was ready to do a runner following this and by the time he was requested again four weeks later on the 24th of September Napper had indeed moved addresses almost in a panic it seemed to 63 Reedhaven Road in Plumstead. Now this was only shortly after the September 1992 edition of Crime Watch UK had aired which contained a lead appeal on the Rachel Nickel murder. He was living here when he was arrested for trying to have the Metropolitan Police paper printed the following month and where the evidence we've heard about during the episode was found, the gun and ammunition, the A to Z with its markings and the gym pass. Yet this was still not linked to the green chain rapes and nor was Napper chased up as to why he'd refused to give a sample when requested. Following his release from his brief prison spell at the end of 1992, Napper's behaviour got odder and he continued a descent into madness. 
He was regularly seen talking to himself, becoming increasingly paranoid that people were talking about him or spying upon him, and he generally withdrew more and more into himself. He lived alone, had no social outlets or relationship with his family, long since disassociating from them, and instead built himself his own little fantasy world, where he came to believe things including that he had millions of pounds in a Sidcup bank, that he'd had visits from and chats with the Queen, that he'd been a freedom fighter in Angola, he sounds very much like my old mate Bill actually, who I've mentioned before. Napper shared these fantasies with nobody, they were just his, and he reinforced them with his fascination and love of firearms, knives and combat magazines. So with a background such as this, there was genuine fear that Napa could be committed under the Mental Health Act without even standing trial first, and I don't know the collective term for doctors, but no less than five of them were to examine him to determine his fitness to stand trial, the date of which was put back to do so. Dr Neil Joseph, a defence-appointed psychiatrist, had first interviewed Napa at HMP Belmarsh, having read the police interviews and statements, and was aware that Napa was charged with double murder and rape. Napa had responded well to him and had opened up, well, in Napa fashion anyway, talking about his happy childhood in Kent, but following his parents' divorce in 1979, how the family had moved to south-east London and things had changed. This was demonstrated, he claimed, by a government plot to extend the years by doubling them, telling Dr Joseph that the years 1973, 1975, 1977, 1979 and 1980 were all twice as long as they should have been, stealing his childhood. He went on to say that after leaving school and working in a wine bar, he had twice met the Queen, who had admonished him about the 1987 charity It's a Royal Knockout Not Going to Plan and expecting him to apologise for it. He claimed to have no idea why he'd been arrested, he knew none of the victims and had never been inside 1A Heathfield Terrace, so was mystified as to why his fingerprints were found inside. He expressed a number of ideas that he himself admitted were unusual, which he'd either tried to conceal or normalise. For example, he claimed to be the holder of a Nobel Peace Prize, he'd been pursued by the IRA and at one point kneecapped, whilst on another occasion his fingers had been blown off but had grown back thanks to him inhaling sparkler fumes, that he had an entry in who's who, he'd been poisoned on a number of occasions and people were constantly, generally, talking about him in a derogatory manner. Throughout the interview he was calm and polite and answered questions carefully, albeit with an abnormal use of language and often referring to himself in the third person, you know, a bit like The Rock, only without laying the people's elbow and calling someone a jabroni. Dr. Joseph diagnosed Napper as suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, characterised by delusions of a paranoid, possibly sexual nature, thought disorder and possible hallucinatory experiences, which meant although he understood the nature of the charges against him and the difference between guilty and not guilty, his ability to effectively communicate with his legal counsel was affected by the susceptibility to delusions. The Crown attained Dr Donald Grubin, who found Napa the same and to whom Napa repeated some of these claims verbatim. He'd not be drawn upon to discuss the offences he was charged with, instead only declaring his intent to issue a plea of not guilty. 
Dr. Grubin concluded Napper as having either a case of Asperger's syndrome or a schizoid personality disorder, likely to view women as unobtainable objects, which when coupled with his obsessional fantasies and isolation, could lead him to sexually motivated murder. However, it was his opinion that Napper was fit to stand trial with the assistance of legal advisers. Third up was Dr. Janet Parrott, who had interviewed Napper on eight occasions from June 1994 up until February 1995. Here she noted his past referral to Maudsley Hospital in the late 1970s, and again in 1989 after his suicide attempt. Here, Napper had been referred for a course of psychotherapy, but had only attended three of these sessions, voluntarily stopping because he claimed that his work would not allow him time off to attend them. During the sessions that he had attended, he'd made reference to an attack he'd committed previously upon a woman, and that he believed people at his workplace knew about his past and were talking about him, which petrified him. She too believed that Napper was fit to stand trial. A Dr Hamilton next visited him on the 16th of March 1995, where once again the same delusions were repeated but Dr. Hamilton decided it was impossible to judge whether Napper could follow proceedings or properly direct his counsel, the instructions given by him being of an abnormal mental state. He advised that the issue should be decided by a jury, especially impanelled for this purpose, under the Criminal Procedure Insanity and Unfitness to Plead Act 1991. So as the trial date approached, it was decided to go through all of the tests again this time conducted at Broadmoor, by which time Napper had been accepted at as a patient and where it was hoped he may have responded to treatment. Dr Parrott reported here that during her examination, she noted that Napper now did not refer to himself in the third person so often, and when she asked him if he could explain why, he replied, It was a mistake of pronouncement. In order to envisage myself, maybe I think of myself from outwards. I must have taken a sidestep to look in. So if you think back to part two of Maniac, hoy all the way back to that, was this what the witness who had heard two male voices arguing coming from the vicinity of Samantha's flat had actually heard on the night of the murder, Napper reflecting upon himself and arguing with himself? Makes you think, eh? The final examining report came from Dr Andrew Payne, a consultant forensic psychiatrist at Broadmoor. He had interviewed Napper on eight occasions during his time as a patient there, had studied all previous psychiatric notes from the Maudsley Hospital, and had overseen when Napper had been accepted and transferred as inpatient in June 1995 under Section 48 of the Mental Health Act 1983. Although he had fitted in well to Broadmoor's routine, and was a clean and tidy patient, Napper did not mix well or mingle socially with other patients, and had a tendency to stare at female staff to the point where they were uncomfortable with it. During Dr Payne's consultations with Napper, he had repeated and revealed several more of his delusions, a list of which was read out as follows. He believed his landlady was urinating in his tea and burning his testicles with a cigarette lighter when he was asleep, he has great wealth and receives haunted checks from the British government. Part of this wealth was inherited, but a great deal of it was from the selling of his work, the Star Wars trilogy, to George Lucas, which he'd written when he was 13 or 14. 
A Roman Catholic sect known as the Roman Corinthian Didicois were working to steal his fortune. He was awarded three Nobel Peace Prizes and a degree while still a child. The calendar has been adjusted by the government so that certain years have been repeated. This is set out in the strategy manual of the British Public Advisory Service. The plot resulted in his actual age being between 41 and 47 years of age. He and his family have long been targets of revenge attacks by the IRA. He was kneecapped by Bobby Sands, who was disguised as a milkman. He had been sent letter bombs, one of which blew off the fingers of his hand, which were restored by his father, who glued them back on by inhaling the fumes of sparklers. He had served as a cadet in the Angolan Wars and received three war medals. He and his family have an entry in Who's Who. He is capable of sending messages by telepathy. He's met the Queen on multiple occasions, but in very hush-hush circumstances. Definitely like Bill, he really, really is. Ultimately, Napa was ruled fit to stand trial, which was scheduled to begin in court number one of the Old Bailey on the 3rd of October 1995. The Bissett team were concerned about whether they had enough evidence as the trial approached. Unlike the Eccleston offences, where there was irrefutable DNA, they had the fingerprints and shoe prints, but that was about it. The fingerprints were also not in blood, so the defence could possibly say that Napper had indeed been at the flat previously, but because of his mind's disturbance had forgotten or had burgled there before and was loath to disclose this fact to police. The other evidence they had, the shoe print, they didn't have the actual shoe for comparison, although there was the receipt in shoe box for the same trainers in his possession. The A to Z books, complete with markings, could ultimately be explained away as just diagrams of running notes. It might seem as clear as day to us, but that's what these bloody legal eagles do, don't they? They seize on stuff like that and exploit loopholes and go in for the kill like that. But police needn't have worried, because on the very first day of the trial, Robert Knapper entered a plea of guilty, but would only admit cases where there was irrefutable forensic evidence against him. He pleaded not guilty to the rape of Julia, which was accepted and left on file, guilty to the other rape and attempted rapes, and guilty by reason of diminished responsibility to the manslaughter of Samantha and Jasmine Bissett. Sentencing was then deferred until the 9th of October, where that day, in the same court, Napper once again stood staring straight ahead, quiet and withdrawn, as Mr Justice Hooper told him, You are suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, characterised by marked thought disorder, paranoia and grandois delusions. You may also have experienced tactile hallucinations, and you feel you can read people's minds. Your mental illness is severe and directly linked to the offences of homicide and rape. You are highly dangerous as a result of that illness. You present a grave and immediate risk to the public. You will require detention in hospital for many years to come. Napa was then detained in Broadmoor without limit of time under sections 37 and 41 of the Mental Health Act 1983. Now with him tucked away and the case against Colin Stagg having spectacularly collapsed, an internal review of the Rachel Nickell investigation had been undertaken and concluded in November 1994 
with the recommendation of a new inquiry headed by Detective Superintendent Peter Charnley, which would continue on from the original investigation, but would keep an open mind as to the identity of the killer, and from here the Bissett Inquiry team liaised. Robert Knapper was interviewed by D.I. John Pierce at Broadmoor on the 20th of December 1995 concerning the Rachel Nickel murder, but made no further admissions and claimed he was in work at Serco at the time of the murder. Checks with Knapper's former colleagues and managers were made, and they agreed that he would have been there as usual on that day, so in the absence of any evidence, the investigation lost interest and waned. But by the year 2000, the Rachel Nickel case came to the top of the pile for review, allocated to the newly formed Murder Review Group, a review team based at Westminster. Analysis of all material evidence from the case was made, and by 2001 the Forensic Science Services returned the results that there were no DNA results to be obtained, which was quite strange because the DNA of Rachel or Alex should have been found at least. An independent forensic assessment of tapings and fibres from the Nickel case was authorised by 2002, which again proved negative, but by 2004, advancements had been made enough that foreign DNA had managed to be discovered and extracted, but was weak and there was no possibility then of identifying it. So a decision was made to run the tests once again, but this time using an outside agency named LGC Forensics who did the most absolutely incredible, unbelievable work that you can imagine to help bring John Cooper to justice, the fellow who we covered in last series' South Wales Slayer arc. And this time, when LGC Forensics got their hands on it, there was a hit. One of the tapings taken from Rachel's body, exhibit WL4, had revealed using SGM Plus profiling both Rachel's DNA and a tiny speck of male component DNA. Now this was able to be tested, and it was found not to match Alex or Andre, the males that one would expect to leave a DNA trace upon Rachel, and it was also categorically not a match for Colin Stagg. But it did prove an absolute perfect match to Robert Clive Knapper. Following this, the status of the Rachel Nickel investigation was changed from review to investigation, and they now had to research Napa's alibi of being at work on the day of the murder. Now, by luck, former Detective Sergeant Alan Jackerman, the officer who'd arrested Napa in 1994, had retired from the police by then and was working with the murder review group out of the same offices. Now what better man do you want to tell your chapter and verse about your suspect? And it transpired that two years before, on his very first day on the job, Alan had made a report to the review team outlining Napper as a suspect in Rachel's murder, putting forward the following possible lines of inquiry. Compare the shoe prints at the murder scene in the culvert to Napper's trainer print found at the Bissett murders. Compare the doodles of Napper to Wimbledon Common to see if there are any correlations. Consider Napper's DNA if advancements are made, and establish with psychiatrists if Napper is fit to be interviewed. When the new investigating team went to speak to Napper's former employers, one of his supervisors from Serco was interviewed and mentioned, almost as an aside, that he had for several years kept the year planner charts of employees 
which he'd meticulously compiled and which were now stored in his loft. The 1992 year planner was retrieved and checked and showed that on the 15th of July 1992, Robert Knapper was off work. Meanwhile, the tiny DNA profile that had been discovered on exhibit WL4 was worked upon under the strictest conditions to ensure there was no possibility of cross-contamination. And by February 2006, it was proven a 1 in 4 million chance to belong to anybody but Robert Knapper. Knapper was now interviewed once again in Broadmoor, but produced a series of no-comment responses and subsequently produced a statement through his solicitor denying responsibility for the murder of Rachel Nakel. But the evidence was strengthening from within Broadmoor, for when he'd been arrested in 1994 and his property seized, several shoes had also been retained. Now the Bissett team had paid little attention to the rest of these, as none of them was an Adidas Phantom Low trainer, and they'd been returned to Napa and were now stored with his property at Broadmoor. These were now checked against the casts of shoes that had been taken from by the ditch where Amanda Filan had seen the man washing his hands in the stream and the soles of an ordinary pair of shoes belonging to Robert Knapper were found to match the casts perfectly. So two for two there, the DNA and the footprints. But there was one final piece of forensic evidence to come. Do you remember when I said a couple of episodes ago that little Alex underwent a full medical scrutinised check when he was found and he was found to have tiny specks of red paint in his hair? Remember that? These were checked against other items of nappers that the police were still in possession of and found to be a perfect match for the red metal toolbox containing his receipts and hunting knives. Napa received notification of his charge of the murder of Rachel Nickel via summons in November 2007 because it takes time to do all this forensic work. It's very painstaking and very time consuming, isn't it? But when he got the summons, Napa denied it. He was to deny it once again on the 24th of January 2008, entering an official plea of not guilty, which he was allowed to enter from Broadmoor via video link. The trial date was set for the 18th of December 2008, once again in court number one of the Old Bailey, 16 years, 22 weeks and 2 days after Rachel's murder. Napper appeared in the dock at 10.30 on the morning of that day wearing a black pattern tie and dark blue pattern check shirt. Although he'd put on some weight over the years, his hair had thinned and his acne had cleared, although the scars were still evident. He was the same quiet individual stood there with his still discernible stoop. When asked by the clerk to enter a plea, Napple stumbled over this, saying, I plead not guilty to murder, but guilty to diminished responsibility by manslaughter, before correcting himself. The months of reflection and the overwhelming evidence against him had finally made him face up to his crimes. Rachel's parents and her boyfriend Andre Hanscom finally came face to face with her killer as Napper admitted it was he who had knifed Rachel 49 times in front of her two-year-old son Alex as they went for their morning walk on Wimbledon Common on the 15th of July 1992. Napper had initially denied any involvement in the murder but had eventually confessed to it when faced with the damning DNA evidence. 
There was also evidence that he'd paid £3.50 for a catalogue which included details of a knife called the Big Swede. Now such a knife was some time later found buried near to the scene of Rachel's death, but the court heard there was no evidence it was used to kill her and it couldn't be forensically linked to Robert Knapper. His psychiatrist, Dr Natalie Pazora, outlined to the court some of Knapper's delusions as we've heard, showing his thought processes were irrational, which they'd been for several years, and as a result, he would have felt untouchable at the time of the murder on Wimbledon Common. She told the court, In my opinion, he continues to suffer a mental disorder which makes the order appropriate and is necessary for the protection of others. The possibility of release is highly unlikely. I couldn't envisage that happening. She also said that Napper accepted this. On his behalf, he then made two denials through his barrister, David Fisher QC, that he had not dragged Alex away face down and had not anally assaulted Rachel, to which Judge Griffith Williams said, I judge that you did. That Alex was not killed as you were later to kill Jasmine Bissett is almost certainly explained by your anxiety not to be caught by staying too long. Napper also offered apologies to both Rachel's family and friends and to Colin Stagg through his barrister. Mr Fisher said, He has expressly asked me to apologise and say sorry to Rachel's partner and their son and to other members of her family, particularly her parents and close friends, for the dreadful thing that he did. I have been asked by this defendant to tender an apology to Mr Stagg. This defendant was not in a satisfactory mental state to appreciate at the time what was going on. He is now, and realises how dreadful that period in Stagg's life it must have been. No shit, eh? Passing sentence upon Napper, Mr Justice Griffith William told Napper he would probably die behind bars. He said, I am satisfied that there are sufficient safeguards under the Mental Health Act to ensure that you will never be released until and unless you are no longer a danger to the public. That, on the evidence before me, is highly unlikely to ever happen. You are on any view a very dangerous man. You still present a high risk of sexual homicide, which can only be managed in a high-security hospital. Napa was then returned to Broadmoor. Following his conviction in 2008, although he'd been estranged from them for years, Napper was publicly disowned by his family. His sister Gillian was reported as telling press from her home in Eltham. I just want to move on from this now. We've been hounded for years and it's about time it finally went away. I've got my own children to protect now. I don't want to think about him anymore. I don't think there are any words that can describe how I feel about him. I've thrown away every photograph I had of him. He should die a slow death and be treated in the same way he treated those poor people. Meanwhile, Napper's mother Pauline reported that she too had disowned him and she was so ashamed of her son that she burnt every photograph she ever had of him. She told the Daily Telegraph newspaper, That is a part of my life that's long behind me now and I don't wish to ever be reminded of. It's too painful to think about. I burnt all the photographs I ever had of him years ago. After I discovered all of the terrible things he'd done, I couldn't cope with the shame and torment that I'd brought this person into the world. Interviewed by the Daily Mail at his home in Australia, 
Brian Napper struggled to comprehend what his son had become. He added, I'd rather remember Robert as I'd always known him in his growing up years, as a lovely little boy who gave no hint that he was going to walk down this terrible path. Perhaps I'm partly to blame for nothing being done. My wife and I were having our own problems at the time. After I emigrated, Robert used to write to me, but his letters stopped coming. I suppose we just drifted apart. Robert Napper remains in Broadmoor to this day, unlikely to ever be released. By all accounts, he's thrived there and considers it some sort of status symbol. Indeed, whilst he was in Belmarsh Prison in 1995, awaiting trial for the deaths of Samantha and Jasmine, he reportedly bragged to others there about how he'd be sent to Broadmoor. One former jail acquaintance revealed, Broadmoor was all he ever talked about. He didn't seem interested in his case or interested in getting off. Instead, he spent hours bragging about how all the psychiatrists thought his crimes were so bad that he would have to go to Broadmoor. It got on the other prisoners' nerves, even the ones on the hospital wing where Napper was being assessed. Once, when he wouldn't shut up about it, another prisoner hurled his breakfast of eggs, tomatoes and porridge all over him. Napper ran back to his cell, screaming. He wasn't a tough guy at all. Instead, Napper now spends his days on the Dorchester Ward, which houses approximately 30 patients. Broadmoor patients have a somewhat relaxed regime. They can get up when they wish practically and can eat food that's stored in their own lockers. They also have keys to their own rooms, but to minimise the risk of suicide, they are checked hourly by hospital staff. Napper, it's claimed, shows interest in sports and the gym where he uses weights and exercise machines, plays football, swing ball, and is also said to be a keen volleyball player. A former Broadmoor source revealed, He's basically very quiet on the wards. He's not as clever as some of the patients, but certainly not as simple as many of the others. He's good at board games and is particularly fond of drafts and scrabble. He likes to be called Bob, but is polite and helpful most of the time and doesn't threaten people, let alone actually do anything menacing. Napper loved volleyball and was pretty good at it too. He liked standing tall at the net and smashing the ball down. Napper wasn't very good at football, but he always gave it a go. Napper was even pictured in 2008 feeding chickens that are kept at Broadmoor as one of the therapies for patients. A very cosy sounding routine indeed, that isn't it? But this was threatened when he was charged in November 2007 over Rachel's death. Some of the other patients there, and bearing in mind that a lot of them are terribly unreal violent killers themselves, claimed to be so disgusted by his crime that they told staff and other patients that they were going to attack or kill him. However, as of recording, he's not been killed. Yet, I should add. Although, I'm sure that as he has been throughout practically all of his life, he isn't Mr. Popular there though either. Now following his conviction, police came under heavy flack for the missed chances that they'd had to stop Napper, which if had been investigated properly and followed up, may have spared several of the green chain victims, left Alex Hanscom with still with a mother, and left Samantha and Jasmine alive. Jasmine, who would have been 31 years old this year, perhaps even having children of her own. 
and I'll summarise the missed opportunities in the next and final part of Maniac, where we shall follow up with all of the players that we've been introduced to over the tale and tie the whole thing up as much as we can. Robert Knapper is also suspected of countless other crimes, including a list of 104 sexual offences around the Green Chain Walk that were painstakingly identified through a detailed search through lists of reported offences from 1988 to 1994, cross-checked with marks that were made in the A to Zs. His name has also been put forward as a suspect in a number of unsolved murders, that in the following episode we shall look at a pair of, with him in mind as a suspect. But it's largely an exercise, because Robert Knapper will never willingly reveal details of any further crimes he's committed, unless glaring forensic evidence suggesting his undeniable guilt hits him smack bang in the face. He's very good at keeping secrets, having sat on his most infamous one for more than 16 years. I hope that you've stuck with me through our journey into the monstrous crimes of Robert Knapper. It's an unbelievably long tale, I know, but one that I needed to research to the depth that I have because of its complexity. And so people such as Rachel, Samantha, Jasmine plus Alex and all those affected by Napa's crimes, their tales are told in full, so they can be remembered with the respect and compassion that they deserve. I'd love as ever to hear your thoughts and opinions concerning the tale, which you can get in touch with me to do through any of the show's social media, or in the episode thread which is always up in the Facebook discussion group. The concluding part of Maniac will be out very soon folks, which I'm going to start upon shortly. And also look out for bonus Patreon episode number 29, which will be out before June. With that, I've nothing to add except that I'll wrap up here now and start putting this bastard to bed. That I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, thanking you warmly for joining me here today, and hoping that you guys stay safe, take care, and I shall speak to you soon. Thanks for joining me guys, and goodbye for now.